0: Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Shlom. When it comes to the history of our understanding of gravity, the names Aristotle, Galileo, Newton, and Einstein definitely loom large in the history of science. Well, now you can add another familiar name to that list, Leonardo da Vinci. It's a fascinating tale that's part detective story as researchers from the California Institute of Technology recently published a paper in the appropriately named MIT Arts and Sciences journal Leonardo. In it they report on previously unknown experiments that the Italian polymath recorded in his notebooks in the early 1500s, 100 years before Galileo's groundbreaking work on acceleration due to gravity. Our guests are Caltech Professor of Aeronautics and Medical Engineering Maury Garib and Chris Rowe, who was working with Garib as a grad student at Caltech and is now an assistant professor at Cornell University. Garib discovered the gravity experiments in 2017 in the then newly released Codex Arundel at the British Library while doing research on Leonardo's techniques for flow visualization for a class he teaches to grad students. What caught his eye were triangles sketched in the notebooks portraying particles, probably sand pouring out from a moving jar. From those sketches and Leonardo's notes, the researchers pieced together that Leonardo had found a method for observing gravitational acceleration. The two researchers join us to talk about it now. Maury Garib and Chris Rowe, welcome to Blue Dot. You're welcome. Hello. Hello. And, of course, we are talking about some very interesting findings that you ran across in Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. But before we get to what actually found, um, can we, let's talk a little bit about the notebooks themselves, because they, they really, truly are amazing. And, and I'd like to ask either one of you, let, let's start with you, Maury. When did you first start uh, perusing Leonardo's notebooks? When did you first get interested in looking at them?
1: Well, uh, my interest goes back many, many years ago when I started to look at Leonardo's studies of cardiovascular system and his sketches of of the heart valves. Um, But the recent work uh, was uh, around uh, 2015-16 when British Library released uh, digital uh, versions of the Codex Arundel. That uh, was basically a collection of the Leonardo's technical, scientific, and personal notes.
0: Yeah, and th- those are, as I recall, um, like the Earl of Arundel um, had those notebooks and then what, donated them to the British Museum as far as I understand. That's correct, yes. And can you give us a sense of just, there? there's a lot to these notebooks. There's thousands of pages, and that notebook you're talking about is just one of them. Can you get, kind of give us a sense of the scale of these notebooks that Leonardo had?
1: Yeah, the scale is very vast and um, almost impossible to go through them you know, in a short time. So I made a, a habit of uh, uh, looking at them every night, you know, just to... Look for new things and not in details, but some of the uh, the sketches and patterns were kind of eye-catching. And one of them was this mysterious triangle that I found in one of the pages. Actually, didn't have anything on it except uh, three uh, words on each uh, sides of this triangle. And, uh, you know, uh, I have I've read the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, so I just said, oh, <laughs> what is this? No, I started to dig in.
0: Oh, and uh, speaking of the Da Vinci Code, one interesting thing about the notebooks is they are in mirror writing, right? Correct. And wh- how is it th- what does that look like? How does that work?
1: Well, uh, Leonardo uh, used to write uh, having a mirror in front of uh, the pages that uh, he was writing on. So therefore, whatever he wrote was in backward mirror image writing on the page itself. And for somebody like me, looking at those, uh, uh, you know, the writings, you know, after a while, you kind of, uh, in your brain, also inverted too. So that's uh, where I uh, noticed the writing of, you know, like motions, moti or uh, directo. in backward, I recognized them.
0: Do we, do we know why he did that?
1: Well, there are many, you know, the, uh uh guesses and uh, postulates. One is that he really didn't want people, you know, that were walking by him or overlooking the notes to see what he was writing. He was very protective of uh, his writings and his discoveries, so he didn't want them to you know, see what he was doing for a different reason from the safety because perhaps some of the stuff he was writing was not really the, something that uh, current uh, authorities of the time would approve. Uh.
0: Because yeah, he was, he worked on so many different things, weapons, uh, gosh, just almost anything you can imagine, he got into it. The word polymath is the perfect description of Leonardo da Vinci.
1: You're absolutely correct. He um, he was a, a scientist polymath in, in, uh, in a rush because he, uh, he uh, many occasions, he said there's so many things to discover, so many things to understand, there's not enough time. So uh, that's why he basically, like a you know, hummingbird, jumped from one flower to another to discover new things.
0: Yeah, and as I recall, even like a, a lot of his paintings, he would work on them continuously, like off and on through his life, and, and many of them were unfinished.
1: Yeah, perhaps, uh, except the, uh, the Mona Lisa, uh, uh, most of his paintings, are they were not finished because he was really busy doing science and research. And the paintings uh, uh, was basically a kind of earning uh, money to continue his work
0: and Chris Rowe, how did you get first get involved in Leonardo's uh, notebooks was it Was it through this project, or had you been investigating them before? When did you first encounter Leonardo's notebooks?
2: no this this project was absolutely the first time I delved into and even attempt to read any of. These backward Italians. Um, so yeah, definitely this was the first, but it was really inspiring journey. So um, I think moving forward, I <laughs> will be doing what Mori uh, um, just communicated about his practices of looking at these um, leaflets that are available now. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be a very rewarding
0: journey moving forward. Well, before we go into depth on your paper that you wrote, uh, which is titled Leonardo da Vinci's Visualization of Gravity as a Form of Acceleration, before we really get into the nuts and bolts of that, uh, I'd like to know more. What what do you use the notebooks for, as far as your teaching? Because I saw that um, in the article I read about this, that you were you were you were using some of this material for uh, graduate students. What what do you use Leonardo's work for with your students, and how does that, how does that work, and what do your students think of this?
1: It's interesting uh, the point because um, I was not. I mean, both of us we were not really trying to write a paper about this. I. When I started to work on that, I realized this is perfect material to discussing my experimental mechanics uh, course where I teach uh, my students the philosophy of doing research experiments or computation and look at your brain as the main tool rather than the tools as the main device. So um, uh, I when I uh, realized that uh, w- what has been done by Leonardo without having a uh, uh, all the technical tools that we have today, I gave it as a homework to my class every year and uh, asked them to come up with a way of measuring, you know, the gravitational constant uh, using, you know, nothing electronics or nothing fancy or lasers or clocks or this. Just use your uh, creativity to see if we can solve it. And unfortunately, it, uh, most of them, they couldn't uh, do it. We are used to all these fancy tools.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I can remember um, doing experiments with my students when I was teaching physics where I would have them design their own pendulums and then uh, try to figure out the, the value of the gravitational constant f- for G, for the acceleration due to gravity, um, and see how accurate they could get. And you know, sometimes they got you know, pretty close, and sometimes it was pretty bad, but it was, it was still interesting to have them do it that way. Well, let's talk about what you exactly encountered. When you were going through these notebooks, what caught your eye that told you that Leonardo was doing experiments um, on gravitational acceleration?
1: Well, after, uh, you know, initial uh, interest I had in looking at the those triangles, I um, got help from one of my former colleague and student, actually, the Professor Flavio Noca in Switzerland, and one of his students to translate some of their writings next to these triangles. And in those writings, we realized that uh, Leonardo, actually watching past clouds, uh, pouring hail, he started to this do this, uh, do this uh, we call it uh, thought experiments, how uh, hail that fell from clouds, you know, land and earth uh, at different times and different trajectories. And then he talks about this experiment that he did with uh, a jar of sand or uh, water to show that, you know, he can actually mimic uh, falling of this um, hail particles or uh, falling objects. And that's where I realized that, you know, he got the point that if he could mimic it a certain way, then that means that he can create uh, that effect of gravitation in any directions.
0: Can you walk us through what he, what was the physical setup that he was using? You know, so you take take us to Leonardo's study or studio. What exactly what he, was he using? What would this have looked like? From
1: sketches of course, you know, and with guessing at how he did it with with uh, Chris, we came up with the idea that perhaps he uh, had an assistant either himself moving the jar at certain uh, you know speed Acceleration, or the assistant did it, and he watched it and sketched it. So the setup would be that you know you can imagine that you know the, uh, somebody has a jar of uh, you know sand or uh, you know water and moves from zero or start with certain acceleration every time. And uh, someone else watching those sands or uh, water, you know the uh, drops dropping, and try to you note know, the sketch it as uh, accurate as they could. And I will explain later on that how difficult this observation can be if uh, you do not have a right you know approach to looking at this
0: uh, you know dropping particles, so is he sliding this this jar uh, horizontally and then, Watching the the particles, the water drops or whatever fall, uh, is that what he's doing? Is is the is the object moving uh, horizontally sideways, and then we're watching the little arc of the material falling? Is that what he's doing?
1: It, exactly, of course. That moving it horizontally to where he was standing was easiest way of doing it because he could basically see that you know he he's moving horizontally. Any different angle could could have been difficult to repeat, correct. I mean, because uh, every time you have to make sure it's at an angle, but your eye and your uh, sense of balance can give you the uh, the ability to move this jars parallel to the ground. And I, I, and that's what I, what I think they that they did in that experiment
0: and what what was your take on this, Chris, when you were think, you know trying to visualize what he was doing in his studio there?
1: I think
2: um, what Maury said is pretty accurate. We wondered, like, if this phenomena is actually observable with naked eyes, or um, if Leonardo has a had a super ability or not to just kind of take a snapshot of a moment and really sketch that right there and then. And also, uh, you you kind of asked about the uh, was the jar moving horizontally. And Maury mentioned uh, moving at an angle is possibility, but his experiment being Trying to distinguish and trying to, in a way, reproduce gravity. It was, I think, really a fortunate and also maybe a genius of uh, him to actually move the jar at an orthogonal direction because then you can really distinguish the effect of the natural motion by gravity versus um, the ones that you prescribe. So it, it's not a coincidence that probably that um, those two directions were orthogonal and. By moving the jar horizontally, I think he would successfully be able to distinguish between the two effects, and um, and the result was that line that drew in the middle of the air, and I think that was just probably he probably thought it was something.
0: <laughs> it's interesting to think about this because um, you know there's a, a something very counterintuitive to people, but it, it's you know it's quite demonstrable, is that you know if you if you fire a rifle, for example and uh, Mm. horizontally and, you know, neglecting, you know, a lot of wind resistance, but if you just fire a rifle or any, you know, roll a marble off a table really fast horizontally, and then you just drop one at the same time as it's going off the table, they'll both hit the ground at exactly the same time. That that motion of uh, the falling motion, the vertical acceleration is completely independent Of that horizontal velocity, they are they are they're independent, and that is not something that's easily intuited by people. And it it had it had to not been understood then. What was our understanding of gravitational acceleration like when Leonardo was doing these experiments in the early fifteen hundreds? Maury, what what did people think about how gravity worked then?
1: Well, um, if you look at the history of uh, you know physics up to. Leonardo's time, and actually, after uh, Galileo's time, even Galileo got into trouble by not believing the concept of impetus, uh, which means that any object that moves, something else should push it. That means something attached to it. So, um, just falling something without uh, if anything is moving it was uh, kind of mysterious that uh, was not uh, explained. So, uh, it was a challenging problem that Leonardo dealt with it. He actually did experiments of letting a ball rolling on a slope. The problem is that because of friction, usually the ball ended up at different points every time. And he has actually done the, that experiment, but never tried to estimate how uh, this object or balls, you know, accelerate because of that friction effect kind of impeded and experimental results.
0: We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our exploration of the gravitational experiments recently found in the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with California Institute of Technology Professor of Aeronautics and Medical Engineering, Maury Garib, and Cornell University Assistant Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering, Chris Rowe, as we talk about the recently discovered gravitational experiments by Leonardo da Vinci. Let's talk about what you saw. You you noticed that his drawing of an isosceles right triangle and labeling that. Can you explain to us what's the significance of that?
1: The significance of the isosceles was that it was a unique case that he directly refers to that if he had achieved to mimic the action of natural falling or gravitation, this uh, basically jar travels the same distance at the same time as the falling object takes to Reach the ground. And for that one, he uh, basically draws that straight line between the two endpoints and say, hey, this is, I achieved, this is equivalence of the natural falling done by a moving object the way that I did it, I mean Leonardo. And uh, he also says that this can be in any direction, towards the heaven or towards the center of the earth, and use, he uses the center of earth, which is also quite uh, intriguing, uh, uh,
0: many years, uh, decades before Galileo. Wow. Yeah, no, that isn't, that's that's amazing. Um, okay, well, let's talk about, uh, you know, you mentioned he had these superpowers of observation, and a- anytime you talk about Leonardo, superlatives are, you know, they must be used, because he was probably yeah. the most... Intelligent and creative human being that has ever walked this planet that we know of.
1: So uh, <laughs> I have to confess something, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, well, uh, we we tried actually a few times uh, in a primitive way to repeat the experiment uh, before we set up our uh, uh, more elaborate, uh, you know, the uh, setup for uh, for the videos that we showed in the uh, uh, other presentation. So. It's very hard to see that a straight line, if you're looking at it by naked eye.
0: That's it's what I was so going to ask. What, what are the limitations? Because you know he doesn't, he has, he has no way to really time this, does he?
1: No, he uh, obviously he used uh, or, or exchange space with time or time with space. Uh, that means he assumed that every time at a given height, it he drops an object it's gonna arrive at the same time. So if he changes the height, it's gonna be a different time, but it's always gonna be the same. So that way he basically created a clock, a nonlinear clock, okay? So he could use this different heights and use them as a different time, okay? I would say a discrete time uh, uh, space. So to see those particles that dropping, he always kept the same height, and he always tried to mimic the acceleration as good as he could. But we believe uh, that to see the straight line, the way that he drew, he must have also moved his head very fast in, in, when observing this particle dropping. So it's equivalent of a high-speed camera, if you think about it. When you, you just mentioned the, the firing a bullet in the horizontal, mm-hmm. imagine the car. Uh, in a in a uh, race, that you know just speeds up right in front of your eye. If you have done have not done that practice, if you can do it, you can move your head with try as some distance as fast as you can, with the uh, movement of the car. Then you can kind of freeze the car and uh, see what is written on the side of it, for example. Ah, oh, yes. So we believe that he used techniques like that to to be able to see that line. We couldn't see it in the in the lab with our naked eyes.
0: And so did you you tried to mimic the experiment in in your lab to, to do it the way he did it, you know, somewhat to, and ran into the difficulties he must have, must have had?
1: That's right. That's right. And actually, we have a video that we can show only we, uh, it, when we started to use high speed cameras, we could freeze those lines in space so we can see, oh, yeah, it's a straight line
0: for those people listening to the podcast version of this show i will put the uh, the video link down below we'll definitely share that with our audience and and make it accessible okay well let's talk about what the acceleration of gravity is so if you if you drop an object in neglect air resistance it will accelerate you know in in english units at the rate of 32 feet per second every second in other words After one second, you know, it's going 32 feet per second. And then each time, each second after that, it's 32 feet more. Um, So it's accelerating. Uh, Or if you're using metrics, 9.81 meters per second squared, meters per second per second, every second, it's going that much faster. What kind of accuracy did he get?
1: Let me just say a quick introduction of how we get there and let Chris to explain that. Okay, good. You know, um, it, it was really through a uh, uh, simulation that Chris done that you we were able to do variations of the, I, was, I would say, the same theme and and realize what he exactly has done and what kind of measurements he was trying to do. Um, Chris? Yeah, so, okay, it's Like to take it back to... Um,
2: what was done. So we started out with observing these triangles. And um, it seemed like he was really trying to model this um, through the experiment, much like what we do in modern days. So what he seemed to have done is that there is this orthogonal um, direction of motion that separates is input from natural motion that he's trying to discover and the result that he wanted to get out of this sort of you can call that a dependent variable and the independent variable his was his prescribed motion and through this line that lines up he wanted to understand the natural motion so I think that was sort of the premise of these experiments that he ran so knowing that like where he could put these jar at different times and providing different acceleration or not. That was his input. So in order to actually model this, I think what he did was, okay, I accelerated this jar from point A to B, uh, point A being the starting point where jar wasn't pouring or just starting to pour but had a zero velocity. And then towards the end where the jar you know, maybe you reach the, the wall and you, you couldn't accelerate or remove the jar anymore. So from point A to B, you what you get is this sort of a line that you travel. And whether your position accelerates or increasing linearly with velocity, um, it draws a line and that's that's it. But I think what was really interesting is that he probably asked, where were the particles at each point in time? And I think that's where the algorithm and, in a way, a mathematical modeling kicks in. Um, So if you now imagine with me, um, if you, just as you've described, we know that acceleration is um, 9.81 meters per second square. You're able to use modern tools like calculus to easily compute the positions of where the particles have been. Um, but he did not have the luxury. But what he did was probably he measured and algorithmically saw that more or less you can ask this question and answer it, where were the particles by cutting that line that the jar has traveled in half consecutively four times. Um, and that's where in the paper we talk about how that mathematically is equivalent to saying that. Uh, It's a doubling trajectory, so each time the jar's location doubles, so mathematically you can kind of say that it's 2 to the t power, with 2 being the base and t being
0: the exponent. And let me back you up there. Is t being time? Yes, t being time. Okay.
2: Although, coincidentally, that's actually very similar to sort of the modern understanding of how gravity accelerates and how we can calculate the position, because a modern view or Newtonian mechanics view would be like t to the 2 power, right? So the base and the exponent will be switched. Um, this idea first came about because now if we compare the two equations, like position equal to t to the 2 power versus positions is equal to 2 to the t power, so the base and um, exponent, again, switches, if you substitute 2 in the t, what you get is 4. So at time equals two, whatever that means, the position is four.
0: Two to the two to the second power, okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and two to the second power, same thing. And but what's interesting is that if you now substitute four to the t, mm-hmm. what well you get is 16. 16 for both cases. Yeah. So they intersect at two points. So that gave us an idea that okay, well. If they intersect at the two points, could it possible that the all the line, uh, all the points in between also are very close during this period of time? And when we plotted it, that was that was exactly the case. Um, so, but then the mistake I made and and um, I had a lot of trouble then to comparing these two equations. The one of the main problem was that the units didn't really work out, right? Um, one of the <laughs> the one of the sins of in in, in doing any experiment is getting the unit sure out, right? then yeah. you don't have a chance of getting the answer mm-hmm. right um and when we think about these sort of an exponential function the first thing you have to make sure is that the part of the exponent cannot have the unit but then if we have if raise two to the t power mm. t has yeah, a unit, unit.
0: Sec- right then seconds no for example
2: exactly what is what does it mean to have what does it mean for exponent to have a unit that doesn't make any sense so i had a trouble comparing these two equations together but the uh, what uh, really solved the problem is this idea of having what happens then if you incorporate this idea of the question that leonardo asked is not where are where will the particles be but rather where were the particles you get this one length scale or sort of a reference point with which you can start non-dimensionalizing, meaning you can divide T with, so for example, uh, total amount of time it took to travel. Now what you have is T over some other unit of time that allows you to start to not <laughs> violate the fundamental rules of not having the units in the exponents. Um, so when we actually do that for both equations, then we get to start to compare how accurate um, Leonardo's gravity algorithm were. And what we found out was that this non-dimensionalized form of two equation, when we compare every point, then uh, if we compare with where actually these particles would be, the error was within 10%. I think that that's when we were really surprised.
1: May I add something here uh, that um, what Chris clearly discovered was that Leonardo was not really studying the sand, uh, falling of the sands. Leonardo used sands as time mark- markers. <gasps> that, so that's, that's how he exchanged time and space. So the particles that are dropping at each point, they mark a, t- a point in time. And how the model was put together was based on that assumption. Uh, that in in physics, we call it the difference between Lagrangian and Eulerian viewpoint. That means that every time we uh, marked it, and that that stand that falling is forever marked at that time. So then the equations that uh, was developed showed that you know they at, at any given time all. Fall on that straight line that propagates uh, at the endpoints of the uh, moving particles and and the falling object.
2: Yeah, Mori is absolutely correct. And um, trying to really understand and calculate and these phenomena, even knowing that the jar is moving horizontally, as Mori described, each particle that are falling at that are released from the jar are marked with the time of release. It, that's equivalent of giving a name tag each time the sand comes off, that you mark, you're going to be uh, Dave, now you're going to be Maury, you're going to be Chris, and now you, you get to track where did Maury go, where did Dave go, where does Chris go? And then at each point in time, the snapshot of like how these particle line up is sort of the gist of how the experiment was done. And in this case, in order for us to really like simulate the uh, the and calculate how um, Leonardo's experiment, um, we had to use this uh, Lagrangian versus Eulerian concept. But also within the Lagrangian concept, you have to d- distinguish between path line and streak line. And strict line is uh, where you get to really mark these particles with time of release and a lot of times the the source of these particles are not moving, but nevertheless, um, knowing that the particles will always be released from the jar um, allows us to call this more or less a streak line. And therefore now in in the simulation, if we track what we call the time of release, uh, we were able to really see how these um, different acceleration uh, lines up the particles that are released at different times. And that was an important step in uh, really uncovering what Leonardo might have been thinking.
0: So, like, what, would he have noticed that, like, you, using our names again for the particle placements, would he have noticed that the distance, you know, uh, me being the first particle and then Mori, would he have noticed that there was a, re- a, a larger distance between Mori and Chris than between... Dave and Maury? Would he have would he've seen that? Would that indicate to him that this acceleration, you know, that we're getting bigger gaps each time?
1: Well, qualitatively, yes, but um, not really the quantitatively. You could see it, but you could, um, unless you do the experiment with those uh, time mark- markers, in this case sands, it's going to be hard to the hard say to measure twice or three times, at least not for me.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, we did notice that during our um, um, actually calculated version of it, it was much more <laughs> easy to observe that you're absolutely right that the 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 distance between the particles, if they're released at like a, a consistent time, um, they can't be equal because they're being accelerated at least downward. And um, in a different frame, uh, what we call the accelerating frame, now if you're traveling with the jar. You can actually let the jar be stationary, but create sort of a pseudo-acceleration field pointing horizontally with the magnitude that you set the jar's acceleration to be. Um, You can see that this acceleration field now, diagonal because of this other acceleration field, um, is an acceleration field, not a velocity field. So naturally, the particle will follow, uh, and and, uh, uh, each particle who spends more time will have larger distance that they travel um, it might have manifested like maury said as a very subtle difference of if he used water there might be more necking and droplet formation because now they're being stretched out mm-hmm. um, we haven't really seen any of uh, indication of um, these sort of inner distance between particles in the manuscript
0: and we don't know what he used we don't know whether he used water or sand or we we don't know from his notebooks
1: no, the, he actually uh, says that he did both, and um, it seems so. But what is what did he didn't do, he observed it with the hail particles, is that to have really individual larger particles, because if he had done it, he would have seen easily the resemblance of those two trajectory of, say, cannonballs. So each particle that falls has a parabolic, actually, trajectory. Uh, Even though all end up in a straight line at the end for any instant of time, but uh, because he used water or sand, as Chris said, it was so continuous, we do not believe that he saw trajectory of every particle of sand that released from the jar.
0: Yeah, it's really cool because you know even our, uh, you can do this at home, our listeners, and I would encourage you to do this because you've got you've know, you've got phones now. <laughs> Leonardo did not have a smartphone, I'm assuming, but you can you know roll a marble off your tabletop and film it, and then you know watch in slow motion, and you'll see it tracing that parabolic arc after it goes off that horizontal surface as it falls to the floor, and and that's just so beautiful. Uh, in when you were mentioning chris about you know two to the t power and you know my my brain was thinking about oh yeah well if you want to figure out how high a bridge is all you have to do is drop a rock off of it and time it and if you know which we do now you know the the gravitational acceleration constant of 9.81 Meters per second squared. It's very simple to determine the height of the bridge, but of course he didn't. He didn't have all those tools yet. But but this is just so fascinating how he was on the verge of all of this.
2: Yes, and if we say use Leonardo's method and um, Leonardo's um, arg- algorithm, Mori um, mentioned that there was no concept of equation at the time, so. Um, I, I wouldn't want to say a mathematical equation, but I think he had a very disciplined algorithm. Um, and and um, what was really fascinating, and this is when we were able to really give a quantitative number of uh, how accurate he might have been. Um, say we now want to use it for practical purposes. Um, he, he had, so if you keep cutting this final traveled line in half, um, and you keep cutting in half many many times you actually start to deviate more and more from actual trajectory and we mathematically kind of described hey so what is the how many times is the most accurate and you're supposed to cut it four times if you want to be really accurate and consistently in the the manuscript uh, what we see is that he only cut the line, Four times, Uh, and that's when we realize that you know there is a saying that uh, all mathematical models are wrong, but they're useful. So you you have to know like the limits of the mathematical model in order to use it right. And even t to the two power, you can say
0: approximation.
2: It's sort of an estimate, approximation, but it's very useful one because it allows us to use it and even measure the height of the bridge. Um, So in that sense, Leonardo's model. Was very useful uh, algorithm, mathematical model, um, because he had a discipline to limit his usage to um, when he asked this question, presumably, where were the particles? He only guessed up to the point of accuracy, which is I can tell you where four of them were <laughs> or something like that, you know, but he never expanded his this use of this algorithm to describe something that could have been, would start to deviate from. Um, the reality. So he, what I learned from this process really was that he was really grounded on his observation of the real world. Uh, sometimes we blindly trust nowadays uh, these uh, mathematical equations and modeling, but um, he, he had discipline to really ground everything that he did in the real world experiment and observation. So that's something I, that's a lesson I took away from this.
0: If you're just joining us, our guests are Caltech Professor Maury Garib and Cornell University Assistant Professor Chris Rowe. And we're talking about the recently discovered experiments on gravitational acceleration found in one of the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our exploration of the gravitational experiments of Leonardo da Vinci, 100 years before Galileo's investigations into the acceleration due to gravity, with our guests, Maury Garib, Caltech professor of aeronautics and medical engineering, and Cornell University assistant professor Chris Rowe. When exactly was he doing this? What years was he doing these experiments? When in, when in the notebooks does this take place in Leonardo's life?
1: These are uh, close to the last 10, 15 years of his life, you know, 15, 15, <laughs> around that time. It wasn't an early time. Early times he was very much influenced by the um, Aristotelian you know, or Greek way of thinking and doing experiments was not something honorable to do. So toward the latest stage of his life, he didn't care and he did all the experiments that he could do.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about that and because In the early 1500s when he's doing these experiments, it's not, tell what, 100 years later where Galileo starts to investigate these things, right?
1: That's absolutely correct. Even the statement that uh, every particle uh, gains certain speed at every instant of time has been uh, credited to Galileo, which actually Leonardo very clearly, writes it down in his manuscripts. Of, of course, you know, we have heard uh, from other historians that, you know, thousand years before him, may people have said something, but nobody said it consistently and applied it to his understandings uh, until Leonardo.
0: And what can you just refresh our memories on what were the experimental methods that, and uh, techniques that Galileo was using to go after this same? investigation. What was what was he using and did he have the same problem with recording time?
1: Well, uh, not as much as uh, uh, I think uh, um, uh, Leonardo. I think accurate timing was invented almost about 50 years after his death. So Galileo has more uh, access to some of the more accurate timing uh, systems.
0: He has more tools in his his kit.
1: More tools, primitive clocks that even much better than, you know, the experiment that Leonardo did is like a moving uh, sand clocks, correct? I mean, that's the the accuracy that he could get from timing. Well, uh, Galileo had more, uh, you know, access to, you know, pendulum type, you know, timing and all those things.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing to think that he was doing this 100 years before Galileo. And prior to – am I correct in saying that prior to your paper and your research that uh, we we would have said that the first real scientific investigations into the acceleration due to gravity were Galileo? And now we know that this is this – there is this new chapter that uh, 100 years before, Leonardo was on to this.
1: Well, um of course, it's going to be a little bit uh, difficult for us as non historian because yeah, there are scientists like, you know, Hazen uh, 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 in the Middle East that they did also really you know, amazing experiments uh, using scientific uh, tools of their time. But I would say with certain you know, the confidence that, yes, it was Leonardo that started to uh, do more Application of the the tools of his time, like you know geometry and others, to study some of the phenomenon that he studied. Anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. <laughs> um, I I am not a historian, and like maurice said, we're not historians. So I felt like our job was to not really map it in the history of understanding gravity, although we tried our best, but to really like um, see with how much Leonardo attempted to understand gravity and with mo- what method. So although historically it is interesting uh, time period. So like there was no like peer reviewed journal, for example, at the time that really like uh, publishes and uh, publicized Leonardo's findings. So even with the discovery, how much does it really make an impact into you know, our understanding? So in in that regard, like the time period and how things were communicated need to be taken into consideration too. Um, But moreover, we were interested by, I think, um, I was very interested by Leonardo's thinking process. And we're in a way um, spoiled by all these modern understanding, modern tools, but what this really shows is this power of observation. Um, So we were able to see what humans can do even without the
0: tools Well it reminds me that uh, back back in the day if you will uh, Leonardo's time and even before you go back to the time of Eratosthenes and uh, in, in ancient Greek times in Alexandria that that you know he Eratosthenes measured the circumference of the earth you know based on some simple observations and very simple tools but just the power of his mind that you know, People were very, very smart back then, even though they didn't have the technology we have now.
1: No, absolutely. You know, um, I always say they didn't have all these uh, uh, TV programs to watch. They had more uh, an intimate contact with nature and observation of what's happening in nature. Um, may, may I add something? Even Certainly. though uh, we said that you are not historians, but also I have a hard time not to uh, observe that 400 years after Leonardo's experiment, uh, here's Einstein sitting in his office in uh, Bern, in his patent office, and uh, he, uh, in a very uh, interesting observation uh, report that he did to Japanese physical society, he said that, you know, the, the aha moment for him was when he assumed uh, that some workers in the building uh, that he was watching, get one of them falls, mm-hmm. and uh, at the first instant of uh, his falling, he won't uh, basically uh, feel his weight. So he said the aha moment were, for him was when he assumed that he realized that you know uh, acceleration can modify gravity, so they're uh, interchangeable.
0: Yes, and
1: and he said that was. That was the key for him to start working on his general theory of relativity. It's called the principle of equivalence.
0: Well, as you go forward, what's the big takeaway after you've done all this? What's the main message you would like to get out about Leonardo? Because you've spent quite a bit of time with his notebooks.
1: First of all, it's um, not only Arundel, but uh, there are many others um, of uh, this uh, codex series. For the fans, you know, of course, you know, they know all about it, but my suggestion is that, you know, have a new look, even the old drawings and sketches that you looked at and uh, try to see a little bit in depth of uh, what kind of uh, thinking resulted in those kind of uh, sketches or drawings. And if there's anything new, there are many wrong things too. You know, it's not just everything he says is absolutely correct. But, you know, uh, in many occasions, they can find, uh, you know, the drawings, the sketches of, uh, you no know, kites, you know, the, or uh, the different machines. I don't think that he was really the original inventor of many of his sketches, because we can find those in other uh, the document by other artists or inventors too. What is fascinating is the way he looked at them, tried to understand them, tried to. See what else we can learn, especially with the more struggling questions of his time. It still is gravity, or you know, or, uh, you know um, how rivers you know, meander, uh, the, which is uh, also amazing, or turbulence uh, in the fluid motion, in his deluge paintings. So um, there are, I would say, three kinds of you know, this, uh, sketches or drawings. One is basic observations, a flower. But in the flower, also he puts a spiral, you know, movements of the the old patterning of the seeds in sunflower seed. or you know, turbulence in the uh, water, and then curling of the hair, of uh, you know the, the, the female objects that uh, he did painting of, and uh, and you can see the similarities. So he was fascinated by process and the try, and he tried to find it in other you know, the venues uh, of his observations.
0: Well, we're out of time, but it's been a joy to talk to you, Um, Maury Garab from Caltech, and Chris Rowe from Cornell University about these incredible experiments in in the notebooks of Leonardo about um, gravity 100 years before Galileo. Thanks so much for sharing all this with us. You're
2: welcome. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks again to our guests, California Institute of Technology Professor of Aeronautics and Medical Engineering, Maury Garib, and Cornell University Assistant Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering, Chris Rowe. Be sure and check out our webpage for a link to see Caltech simulations of Leonardo's experiments on gravitational acceleration. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot.